Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid! Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are to whom ye obey? whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us as we consider it together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray thanking you for the death of Jesus Christ and for his mighty resurrection and for the impact that these events have upon us as your people. Bless us in the consideration of your word Make us the slaves of obedience and cause us to know the reasons that you have established the truth of the gospel and that you would empower us by your grace to live according to those reasons. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This afternoon, we will look at obedience unto righteousness. We'll look at this in three parts. The objection restated. His servants ye are, and cannot serve two masters. You recall from verse 1, which we did not read, What then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? This is very similar to that. He asks in verse 15, What then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law. The end of chapter 5, he talked about the abounding grace, superabounding over our sin. And he's just talked in verse 14 about the law. We are not under the law, but under grace. And the question is, if I'm not under law, as we looked at last week, can I then continue to sin? Can I do acts of sin? So we'll consider this together. First, the objection restated. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. Now, the apostle uses this phrase, what then, in various contexts. We've seen it before. Romans 3.1, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there in circumcision? The end of chapter 2, he showed that Jews are greater condemnation because of their knowledge of the law. So then what's the advantage is the question. It's the objection someone would bring. Why did God even choose the Jews to begin with in the Old Testament? Why did he call Abraham? Why the Exodus? So he answers that there in chapter 3. What then? is the advantage of the Jew. Chapter 6, verse then, what, verse 1, what shall we say then? Same construction in Greek. 
Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We've seen this phrase, in other words, before. He's raising someone, perhaps someone's listening to what he says, reading the epistle, and they think, well, there must be some problem here. Because if I'm not under the law, then I can just sin whenever I choose. That's the idea. That's the objection. So he is bringing this objection to the fore. Shall we sin? One act of sin. To commit one thing that is contrary to God's law. Is it a logical deduction that because I'm not under the law but under grace, that therefore I can do one thing that is sinful? Verse 1 said, shall we continue in sin? Sin was like a thing that we would continue in. Here it's an action that we do. Shall we commit an act of sin? Is this the logical conclusion from what you've just said, Paul? Thomas Aquinas asks, are we to sin, that is, to act against the moral principles? Because, as has been said, we are not under the law, but under grace. The law has moral precepts, commandments. Are we saying now that I don't have to do that because I'm not under the law? That's the question here. Now, we considered last week, what is it to be under law or under grace? And if you recall, the law gives commandments on tables of stone, but does it enable you to do anything that it says? No, it says, do this and live. Do you do it? No. So you must die. The wages of sin is death, sin being a violation of the law. So that system of law, law as law, with precepts and with threats for disobedience, namely death, that system has been abolished and abrogated for the believer. Now, it's still in place for all who do not believe in Christ. The wrath of God still abides upon them. Why? Because they're under law. Law says do, they don't do. Law says don't, they do it. And therefore, they must die. All you who are not united to Christ, they must die because of that sin and because of the law's requirements. What does grace do? Does grace give commands that it does not enable you to fulfill? No, just the opposite. Grace comes in and says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And then it gives you faith so that you might believe. Grace says, out of thankfulness to God who saved you, now keep his commandments. And grace gives you the power to keep God's commandments. The law commands, grace enables. The law condemns, grace justifies. You see the difference. And we're not under law, we're under grace. And the conclusion that the legalist would say, well, then you're saying we can just do whatever we want. You're saying that we can sin because we're not under law. You've abrogated moral rule. What is Paul's answer? Look there again, verse 15. God forbid, William Plummer says in his usual indignant style, expressive of his abhorrence, he says, let it never be. That's literally what it means. May genoita. May this not ever enter into your mind that this would be the case. Freedom from the law is not freedom from moral obligation. Whoever so charges slanders the gospel and perverts the grace of God. God does not lose his natural right over us as lawgiver simply because he added a supernatural right as our redeemer. 
That's the idea here. Grace perfects nature. It does not abrogate it. It does not abolish it. The precepts of the law are honored by Christ obeying them and dying under the curse of our disobedience. God has made the law honorable in his son. In fact, we saw earlier in chapter 3, by faith we establish the law. We don't abrogate it. Then in the second place, his servants are ye are. Look there at verse 16, please. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Know ye not. Paul will ask this elsewhere. Romans 11.2, he asks, Watch ye not what the scripture saith of Elias? Well, yes, of course you know. In fact, the construction in the Greek means, yes, you know. It's a rhetorical question. It's asked in the form of a question, but it's asserting something. You know what God said to Elijah in the Old Testament. Know ye not. Yes, you do know that whoever you yield yourself to, you are his slave. That's what he's saying here in verse 16 of Romans 6. Now, Paul also asks, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Well, everybody knows that, right? It's a truism. He's assuming you know what he's asking you about. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, of course, everybody knows that. You live in a wicked style of life, you're going to go to hell. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. James asks, Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Well, of course we know that, James. It's a true statement, universally accepted. And here's the statement. That to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey. Now this word for yielding is the same word we saw back in verse 13, where he says, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness. And we saw there, the idea is a military term, where soldiers come up and present their arms to their commanding officer. They yield themselves up and are ready to follow orders, and they show him their readiness. They would call it muster, for example. Come together, line up, and be ready to receive your orders. Present yourselves. Yield yourselves. Same verb here. To furnish, to provide, to make ready, to cause to be present. Sometimes this word would be used for a sacrifice, to yield up your sacrifice, give it over to the priest. Here he's saying, whoever you yield yourself, present yourself as ready to receive orders from, you are his slave. That's a truism. Everybody knows that. You present yourself to your master and say, I'm ready to serve you. You're his slave. You do what he says. Hodge says this idea of yielding in the sense of giving up to the power and disposal of. You are my master, you have power over me, dispose of me as you will. That's the idea, yielding yourself. And then he says, yielding yourselves, servants. Now this word servant in English is a very interesting term. We tend to think of it as like Jeeves or something, some hired person who comes around. But the word servant, Augustine points out in his City of God, the following. The origin of the Latin word for slave is supposed to be found in the circumstance of those who by the law of war were liable to be killed were sometimes preserved by their victors and were hence called servants. 
Servare means to save in Latin. We can destroy all of our enemies under the law of war. That's the victor's right. Kill them all. But we are going to servare. We're going to save some, and we will keep them as our servantes, our slaves. That's how slavery came about. It was actually an act of mercy. People think of slavery as like an act of oppression. No, 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 no. Slavery was an act of mercy. We have the right to kill you all, but we're going to save some of you alive to do some work for us. That's the idea of slavery or servitude. And so this word servant, it's the same actually in Greek, doulos. It means one who's bound with a chain to his master. Because what do you do with those mighty warriors? You just killed half of them and you took half of them as slaves. You're going to let them be unchained? No. You're going to chain them up so that they can't fight against you. But they're still going to do your will. That's the idea of a doulos. And the, the Latin being servant. So when we read the word servant in our English Bible, it's an appropriate translation. It doesn't have to say slave. It means those preserved from destruction and made into slaves in warfare. That aside, he says, when you come as one preserved alive, as one taken as a slave, and you present yourself for obedience to that one, you are its slave, whatever it is. Peter Martyr notes about this idea of servitude. He says, The devil, assaulting by battle our first parents, overcame them and took them, and by that transgression hath made all our nature captive, and hath still in subjection, and to be his servants as many as through Christ are not set at liberty. Now remember, Christ overcomes the devil, right? And he redeems the captives. He takes them out from the devil's unlawful power. Please open to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, concerning this idea of Satan as a slave master. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, page 1202 of your pew Bibles, starting at verse 24. And the servant of the Lord must not, be, must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if peradventure God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. Notice there, servants. And notice how he addresses Timothy, the servant of the Lord. You are Christ's slave. These men are bond slaves to the devil. And your job is to get those slaves to defect from that master to your master. That's what he's saying. You're the servant of the Lord. You're his slave. He redeemed you. Now there are others who need to be recovered by Christ and brought out of the slavery of Satan, the servitude of the devil. Please turn back to Romans chapter 6, page 1138. Again, verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey? There's the word obey. What does this word mean? Akuo, like acoustics, is the sound of a voice or some sound reverberating in the air. Obedience means you hear the sound of the voice, and what do you do? 
you come under it. Hupakuo. Hupa is under, and akuo is what is heard. You hear the word, but you come under the word. You submit yourself to the word. If the word promises some good, coming under the word means I believe that promise. Coming under the word of law means I will obey what that says. That law, I will follow it to the best of my ability, sincerely with all my heart. That's the idea of obedience. You have the basic duty of servants. What is it? Ephesians 6, 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. That's the basic job of a slave. Do what you're told. Your master says jump, you jump. Your master says run, you run. He says pick this up, you pick it up. He says move that over there, you move it over there. Obedience, hear the word, do the word. That's the duty of a slave. You can also see this in Colossians 3.22, Titus chapter 2, verse 9, and 1 Peter 2.18. The basic duty of a slave is to do what his master says. So when he says his servants he are to obey, he's just saying something everybody knows to be the case. You're a slave, you do what your master says. Now, but we cannot serve two masters in the third place. Whether of sin unto death, here's the first master. Here's the first one who rules over the slaves. Lord Sin, we call him. He says, you are my slaves, present yourself to me, be ready to do what I say, come under my words, my words, thou shalt sin, thou shalt do evil, you must transgress the precepts of heaven. Ambrose says, Sin is a transgression of the divine law, disobedience against the heavenly commands. What is the Bible? It's the heavenly voice of God. It's the oracles. It's what he says. Sin says, don't do what God says. Don't follow divine command. And what is the wages of sin? Death. We saw this from Romans 5. We'll see it, God willing, from Romans 6.23. Please open to John chapter 8, page 1075 of your pew Bibles. John chapter 8, a very instructive dialogue between our Lord Jesus Christ and the Pharisees. Verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, Then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. By the way, there are certain federal law enforcement agencies that blasphemy drudge this text up and put it on their plaque. No. This means not the truth of you creating disinformation among the nations and overthrowing governments and spying on Americans. This is the truth of Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins, raised again for our justification. That's the truth he's talking about. And this truth truly makes us free, not slaves like man's truth does, or supposed truth. Verse 33, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed. And we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? By the way, when they take Jesus to crucify him, who do they have to go to? Romans. Romans. So are they free? Mm -mm. 
You can't exercise your own civil power. You're not free. They're lying and they're self-deluded. So they believe that they're actually free. And Jesus says, I'm offering you actual freedom. You don't have it. But they think they have it. Oh, we're Abraham's seed. We got this covered. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Remember how Timothy is called the servant of the Lord. You have been saved by the conquering general who came and brought you out of your bondage. Now, Timothy, go to these captive by the devil. Bring them out of their captivity. Do not strive and fight with them. Be apt to teach them, show them the truth, the truth about Jesus so that they too may be made free. They may be brought out of their servitude of sin, which leads to death. Sin and misery go together, death being the ultimate misery. Therefore, sin and misery, death and sin go hand in hand. What is the opposite of death? Life, isn't it? But notice here, let's turn back to Romans chapter 6. He'll give us the opposite. Romans 6 verse 16 again. Know, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto life? Do we get eternal life by means of obedience? We do not. So the apostle changes it. Of obedience unto righteousness. Here, obedience is personified. It's a figure of speech where an idea or an abstract thing is spoken of as if it's a person, just like sin. Lord, sin, we said. So on the other side, we have obedience is the other master. Obedience gives orders. What does obedience say? Do what the word says. Believe in the promise. Obey the precept. That's what obedience says. This master obedience gives orders. And the orders that obedience gives leads us not unto death, but unto righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 the same exact phrase as Paul uses here is used there in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. The law requires righteousness in your own person. But Abraham had a faith righteousness where he believed God's promise concerning the seed of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ. And God said, rather than require this of you, I will give this to you freely, this righteousness. I will impute this unto you. Let's turn over to Psalm 106. The same phrase is scattered throughout the Old Testament concerning unto righteousness. Psalm 106, page 646 of your pew Bibles. This concerns Phinehas, which we looked at from Numbers 31, where he took the army against the Midianites he had a zeal of God. Let's read verses 29 through 31. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions 
and the plague break in upon them. Then stood up Phinehas and executed judgment. And so the plague was stayed, and it was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. That deed, God guaranteed him that in the priesthood of Aaron, his father, he would not lack a descendant after him generation to generation. God gave him that righteousness to all generations. Please turn over to Jeremiah chapter 4, page 767. Jeremiah chapter 4. We'll read the first four verses. This concerns what does it mean, obedience unto righteousness. Starting at verse 1. If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me. Now remember, they had returned to their false gods, right? They had been following the Lord and they turned around and went back to their Egyptian gods, to their idols of the heathens and to the Canaanite gods. So now he says, if you're going to return, if you're going to repent, you make sure that you come back to me, he says. And if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou not remove. Okay, you don't want to go to captivity, right? Let's think this through, Israel. Let's think this through, Judah. You don't want to go to captivity, but you don't want to return to me, and that's what's sending you there. But I'm telling you right now, if you return to me, you will not be removed. And thou shalt swear, verse 2, the Lord liveth in truth and in judgment and in righteousness, and the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskin of your heart. Ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. What does it mean to obey in righteousness or unto righteousness? Notice here. You have ground that is so hard that the only thing that grows there is what? Thorns, that's it. That's all you can get to grow in your land. Nothing productive, nothing useful, nothing healthful, just those prickly thorns that everybody hates. Turn away from your ways, he says. Break up the fallow ground. Come back to me in righteousness. Obey my voice and you will be blessed. No captivity, no death, no destruction, no thorns, just blessings. That's what he says. Return to me. If you're going to turn again, don't turn back to some other God. Turn back to me. Put away, he says, thine abominations. In other words... To obey unto righteousness is repentance and new obedience. Turn over to Hosea chapter 10, please. The same phrase as we saw in Romans 6 is used here in our Greek Septuagint. Page 917 of your pew Bibles. Hosea chapter 10. We'll read 11 through 13. Lots of very interesting farming illustrations in the Bible. Verse 11, And Ephraim is an heifer that is taught and loveth to tread out the corn. But I will pass over upon her fair neck 
I will make Ephraim to ride, Judah shall plow, and Jacob shall break his clods. Now, just a brief point. If you have a heifer who treads out your corn, she gets fed with the corn. They get pretty naughty when they get fed with the corn because they think, oh, (laughs) I'm special. But when they're required to go out and plow and you break across their neck and you say, make me some furrows, I don't want to be under this yoke. I want my freedom. I want my corn. Now here you're pushing me along to make these furrows. I'm going to discipline you, God is saying. I'm not going to feed you with the fat anymore. I'm going to make you work. Break up the clods. Now notice verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Same phrase. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Ye have plowed wickedness. Ye have reaped iniquity. Ye have eaten the fruit of lies because thou didst trust in thy way in the multitude of thy mighty men. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. You sow these seeds as a slave of sin. What does it produce? What has it gotten you? What's your end of the bargain for all this sin you've been doing? Judgment, destruction, captivity, ruled over by foreigners. You have no right over your own things. You've plowed wickedness. You've reaped iniquity. You'll eat the fruit of your own lies, he says. You'll plant your lies in the ground and let them grow. You trusted in your own way, he says. So what's the solution? Do not present yourself to Lord sin who leads to death, but rather sow to yourself in righteousness. That's the word here. That's the phrase. Same phrase as Paul uses. Sow the seed of master obedience who says, do what the Lord says. Turn from your own ways. Stop being self-absorbed and wanting to tread out the corn. I've got work for you to do. I've got a yoke to put on your neck and you keep on casting it off. It's time to sow in righteousness. It's time to obey the master obedience It's time to present yourself to him as the slaves of righteousness, not the slaves of sin. It's time to break up that fallow ground and the death that comes because you can't live on thorns, can you? You can't eat thorns and expect to live very long. You will most certainly die. Your body requires wholesome food. Your body requires ground that's broken up and is not fallow, doesn't it? And you cannot survive, he says. All you will have is death. So repent, he says. Turn from your way. Turn to my ways. Now, turn back to Romans chapter 4. The same unto righteousness is used. The same phrase as we've seen in the Septuagint of the Old Testament in these various passages concerning Phinehas. Concerning the sowing unto righteousness. Verses 1 through 5. Romans 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness same phrase 
Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Same exact phrase. Look down at verse 9. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. God requires perfect obedience to his law. That is a moral, personal righteousness. And God accepted from Abraham believing in the promise as a substitute for that moral obedience to his commandments. God said, I will justify you, Abraham, and declare you to be righteous, not by your works, but by believing in my promise. So we see here, there is a twofold righteousness. There is one that says, believe in Christ and you shall be justified as our father Abraham was. And there is one that says, you must break up your fallow ground. Do not sow among thorns. Sow and plow as God puts his yoke upon you. Be obedient, therefore, unto righteousness. We'll also see from chapter 10, verse 4, and verse 10 of chapter 10, that there is this unto righteousness, believing and confessing with your mouth unto salvation, believing unto righteousness. Same idea. You are justified by faith. Robert Haldane notes that death is the wages of sin, but life is not the wages of obedience. Matthew Poole, though sin be the cause of death, Yet obedience is not the cause of life, but only the way to it. Charles Hodge, obedience is personified as the master to whom he is now subject. He is not only bound to obey, but he is bound to obey in spite of the resistance of his still imperfectly sanctified nature. Doctrines and duties then from these two verses in Romans 6. First, There are two and only two spiritual masters, sin and obedience. There are two and only two spiritual masters, sin and obedience. First of information. Remember, sin is a transgression of the law. It is violating the law. That's one master who says you ought to violate God's commandments. You must break his commandments. The other master says... You must do what is holy and just. And what is that but what God has commanded? What is holiness? Keeping the first table of the law. What is righteousness? Keeping the second table of the law. These two together compose all of what God requires of man. There are two and only two spiritual masters. Therefore, if men tell you, I've got a rule for holiness or for righteousness... The question then becomes, has God in his word required me to obey this? Because if he hasn't told me that this is holy and this is not, then it's will worship. Then it's man making things up. It's a device and invention of men. Sin or obedience, which is it? Is it a violation of divine law or is it keeping a divine law? Because there isn't a third category where men can say, well, my doctrines and commandments bind your conscience. No, that's sin. 
It's sin to make that rule. It's sin to follow that rule out of conscience toward God. God says, come under the word, obey. That's what the master obedience says. Follow the word. What does it say? This is a second use of consolation, that there are two and only two spiritual masters. If we serve one or the other, every slip of service, you have a slave who presents himself to his master every day and occasionally serves another master. No, that's not what he's talking about. It is the resolved daily ongoing pattern of life that he's talking about. William Plummer again. A person may do an occasional service for one to whom he is not servant, but no doubt he is the servant of that man to whom he habitually yields and addicts himself and in whose work he spends his time and strength and skill and abilities day after day and year after year. That's how you know. The slave is constantly serving over the whole course of his life, year after year, day after day, the most he can do, he presents himself to his master. Will you slip? Will you serve sin on occasion? Yes, of course. Believers will constantly struggle with indwelling sin, but it does not mean sin is our master. And this is a word of consolation. Also a word of exhortation. Let us more and more train our minds, our wills, our affections, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, all of our members to ignore this false master sin. Do not listen to the orders barked out from this commander, from this Lord sin. We are not under law. We are not bound to listen to Lord's sin. And we must train ourselves out of it. This is called mortification. Put off the old man, put on the new. Train ourselves in how we think, in the things we delight in, in the things that we choose, the things that we look at, the things that we hear, where we go with our feet, what we do with our hands. The Lord says we are his slaves. We are slaves of master obedience. And we must follow and train ourselves to ignore the other. A second doctrine. There is a twofold righteousness for those united to Christ. There is an imputed and an imparted righteousness. There is a twofold righteousness. If we're joined to Christ, there is unto righteousness in justification as our father Abraham. He believed unto righteousness. And there is what we call sanctification or an imparted righteousness where he says, you are subject and slaves of obedience unto righteousness, a second form of righteousness. First use of information. Our larger catechism very usefully summarizes this question 77. It asks the following, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? Okay, so they're, they're both from God, they're both works of God, but how are they different from each other? Answer, although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ. In that God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ. There's the imputed righteousness. It is perfect. It is full. 
that man answers all the demands of God's law. There's no fault to be found with it. It is eternal. It is immutable. And it goes on in the saints forevermore. That's justification. Catechism goes on. In sanctification, his spirit infuseth grace and enableth to the exercise thereof. In the former, sin is pardoned. In the other, it is subdued. The one doth equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God, and that perfectly in this life, that they never fall into condemnation. The other is neither equal in all, nor in this life perfect in any, but growing up to perfection. This is where Peter says, grow in grace and knowledge. He's not saying become more justified. He's saying what? Become more sanctified, become more holy. And that's what this righteousness is in Romans 6, verse 16. This obedience, when we present ourselves as slaves to our Lord, obedience unto righteousness, it is the righteousness of sanctification, growing in obedience to all that the Lord requires of us. And it will not be perfect in any in this life. There is no sinless perfection where you say, well, brother, I ain't sinned for six years. I've been on this plane of holiness unlike all you unwashed masses. I'm holy and I ain't lied except for a minute ago when I told you I haven't sinned for the last six months. That's the idea. No one's going to get to that plane of perfection, but in justification we are accepted as such. This also serves as a rebuke. Now think through this with me. When the doctrine of grace is presented as the apostle presents it, a certain objection arises in people's minds. Well, you're saying... Because we're not under law, we're not do this and live, but rather now you live, so go do this, we're under grace, that means that I can actually sin because the law has no claim. So if someone cannot come to your doctrine of grace, namely a legalist, and say, well, you're giving license to sin, then you don't hold the right doctrine of grace. Because Paul's doctrine was liable to that objection. You're saying, I'm not justified by keeping the law, so the law has no claim, right? Not under law, so then I can sin, right? I can do as I please. Now, let me ask you a question. When our Protestant Reformation was well underway, what was the accusation the Church of Rome made against the Reformers? Oh, you're saying that we can be sinful. We can do evil deeds because how are we justified? You say we're justified how? By faith and faith alone. <laughs> you see, you open the door to lawlessness. What did they say about the Apostle Paul? Oh, Paul, you say we're not under law, that we're justified by faith without works. You're opening the door for sin, Paul. Was he opening the door for sin? No. But his doctrine was liable to that objection by the Pharisees of his day and the Pharisees of our day and the Pharisees of Martin Luther's day. They all have the same problem. They all believe, well, yeah, justification is by faith. But you know, I got to contribute something, okay? I got to be special. I got to have something that I can put in there, 99% Christ works and 1% mine, right? And then I'll be justified later after I continue persevering in obedience. And it'll kind of be like phase one of justification and phase two, 
No, that's not correct. <clears throat> Wrong answer. There is justification by the righteousness of Christ, and there is condemnation. Those are your choices. Charles Hodge, because works are not the ground of our justification, because we are justified freely by his grace, are we at liberty to sin without fear and without restraint? Does the doctrine of gratuitous, that is, free salvation, give a license to the unrestrained indulgence of all evil? Such has been the objection to the doctrines of grace in all ages. And the fact that this objection was made to Paul's teachings proves that his doctrine is the same with that against which the same objection is still urged. If they objected to Paul this thing, and they object to you the same, you have the same doctrine as Paul. Now, there are those who say, well, yeah, that's right. We can do evil because we're not under the law. These are called libertines. God loses his moral right because of his saving right. No, he doesn't. That's what Paul's saying. So we don't believe with the antinomian or the libertine that the law uses or loses its force because of salvation, but nor do we believe with the legalist that somehow we have to sneak works into our justification. And then of exhortation, our third use and final use here. Again, from our larger catechism, question 32. How is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? That is, Adam was the first covenant, Christ is the second. The grace of God is manifested in the second covenant in that he freely provideth and offereth to sinners a mediator and life and salvation by him and requiring faith as the condition to interest them in him promiseth and giveth his Holy Spirit to all his elect to work in them that faith with all other saving graces. Now listen. And to enable them unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God and as the way he hath appointed them to salvation. This is exactly like our Christian Sabbath. God has justified you freely by his grace. All he requires is that you believe. And he'll give his Holy Spirit to his elect and cause them to believe. He'll work all those graces in them. Now that you have been justified freely by his grace, God's got work for you to do. Just like we rest on the first day and we work on the other six, rather than working on the first six and resting on the seventh. That's an illustration for us of the way of salvation under the gospel. God has a way that leads to Mount Zion. It is by coming and presenting ourselves as slaves to the master obedience, which leads unto what? Righteousness, obedience, holiness, sanctification, all the way, every step of the way till we get to Mount Zion, that is the way God has appointed us unto salvation. But it is not a title to reigning. Justification is the title to reign. Obedience and sanctification is the, the way unto salvation. It's the way to the city. But when you get to the city and when you knock on the doors, they're not going to say, did you walk on every step? They're going to say, show me the title that you have to come in here. And what is that title? Jesus Christ, the righteous, has died for my sins. He has risen again for my justification. And therefore, God must accept me. And that's how we get in. You'll see this also in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. I would encourage you to look at that this afternoon. 
God says that we are not saved by faith, but it's by, or excuse me, it's not saved by works, but by his grace through faith. And that faith, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then what does he say? We're saved unto good works. We are saved to come under a new master, obedience unto righteousness, rather than our old master, sin unto death. And thus far the explanation of God's holy word from the book of Romans 6, verses 15 and 16.